Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gift of Freedom. For tonight, we're going to be talking about the artwork, Still I Rise, Maya Angelou's artwork by artist Frank Morrison. And Frank's uh, art is owned by quite a number of notable people, including 2D Jakes and others. Good evening, Mr. Morrison. How are you? Hello? Is that Frank Morris? Are you there? Yes, this is me. This is Frank. How are you doing this evening? I'm fine, Mr. Morris, and how are you today? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having and, me. Okay. And uh, you're here to talk about your artwork, uh, Still I Rise, oh, yeah. uh, relative to Angela Maya, uh, Angela, or Maya Angelo, excuse me. Yes. Yes. And uh, how did you get interested in this artwork? And talk to us a little bit about how you got started. Uh, On the piece or in my career? Uh, Excuse me? So I'll start with the piece. Um, Okay. uh, Maya Angelou has, um, I don't know if this has been noted, among many of the things that she was, she was also a collector of art. She also collected art. And um, I was with a gallery called Savico Gallery years ago, and um, I found out that she had added one of my pieces to her collection. And at that point, I started studying her literature and studying her poems. And um, so like everyone else, when uh, we heard the news about her transcending, um, I was touched. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a piece that would commemorate, uh, for me, in a small way, what, what she meant. And what I, what I noticed is because when I illustrate, I also illustrate children's books, and um, this question that came up to me um, a while ago is why. Uh, Frank, why is so many illustrators of children's books of African-American descent uh, illustrate African-American stories, such as um, Malcolm X, um, Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, uh, you know, to name a few. And it's so, what I found out is that it's so that the next generation, so it will resonate with the next generation, uh, so they don't forget. You know how um, I don't want to say that art goes in and out of style, which it sometimes it does, but sometimes a new artist can take a story uh, I had a dream, and they can put something or flair to it that will that it, it, children of this generation can can uh, understand. 
and be more recognizable for it. And mm-hmm. so so what I end up doing with Still I Rise is um, instead of painting a portrait of Maya, I wanted to paint images of the next generation holding up her powerful words and showing that they recognize that and they still can rise and giving that hope to a new generation. You know, I feel like she was one of our leaders. Uh, she was especially a leader to African-American women, and I feel like um, even men, even I was a little jealous because men, I would read hers and be inspired as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to create something um, that could um, commemorate that. That's why I threw the little guy in the middle, and then they'll have the women, uh, the little girls on the side of it. So she appealed to the whole African-American diaspora. Yeah, do you have children yourself? You seem to really be in sync with children. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have five children. I have um, three uh, three boys and two girls, yes. Okay. And what are their ages? Oh, I have a 20, you know, I, I paint all the time and I'm getting old, so hold on, don't hold me to this, hold on. Let me, <laughs> let me get these numbers together, man, all right? I have my okay. daughter, my youngest daughter, I saw my youngest daughter, she's three. My little Tiffany, she's three. Then I have my, the next is my son, Nasir. Nasir is 11. Then I have my middle, my daughter, my other daughter, her name is Naya, she's 17. I have a son, Tariq, which is 20. And then I have uh, my other son, Nari, which is 21. How do they inspire you? Oh, oh my gosh. Your artwork, have you used them in your artwork? I I use them, I use their poses, their mannerisms. I use, you know, it's weird because um, they keep me abreast of what's in and what's not. You know, um, the other day I'm looking for a pair of sneakers, and I, and I try to let this resonate through my artwork. So I, I look for a pair of sneakers. And for the older generation, like myself, I grew up in the 80s. I'm, I, grew up, I was born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s. So I go out, and I have my perspective on a nice pair of sneakers is something totally different. So to play it safe, I go with a, a particular style, maybe a shell toe Adidas, and that represents my hip-hop. When I try to reach out and find a pair of sneakers that I think is nice, my children tell me that I am the corniest, <laughs> stylish guy out there. And it seems like the weirdest, the weirder the shoe is, the better the shoe is. So what they, and I say that they keep me up on what's current right now. Not to say that I'm, you know, that I'm not, you know, not in style at all, but I, 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 let, I know what the next generation, I do have a key on what the next generation is looking for. And uh, you were a break dancer at one time. How did you make this transition from that to artwork? You know, and I, um, in my bio, I have to correct some of that. We, you know, I, I okay. think in the 80s, in the 80s, um, every, this is what I love about and I think this is what gives me my motivation for today. In um, the 80s, we grew up as a, um, it was a different generation, you know. Hip-hop was even different, you know. It was, um, it was about not the, what you had on. It was about what you could do. And if you had on something, it was even a plus. But it wasn't just about your clothing. It was about your skills. And breakdancing was something that everyone pretty much did in their 80s. It gave me a competitive spirit. But when the 90s came about, the late 80s and 90s came about, it was more of a hip-hop, club hip-hop type thing going on. It was Queen Latifah and these stomp dances and all this and that. And so it tried trending, the trend started moving over to 
uh, club dancing, and I became a club dancer as well, and I competed and I competed. And then what ended up happening was uh, one of the competitions, a uh, partner and I, so I, um, was, there was a, um, we won a competition, and the scout came out and said that they're looking for children or a group to audition for a lady named Sybil. And Sybil, we were like, wow, this is like the hottest song on the radio. Um, it was called Don't Meet Me Over. And so my bar- dance partner and I had like three days to put together a routine. Make a long story short, we ended up performing for Sybil. She loved us, and we ended up dancing for her for about three years. I danced for her from the 10th grade all the way up to the 12th grade. And one of the things, and how this is all circles into art, is that one day um, we were on tour with Guy. And uh, you guys remember Guy, Teddy Valley, New Jack Swing and all that. This is for the old heads out there. But one day after our show with Guy, um, our role manager named Bashir had came back to the hotel room and let us know that they wanted us in Paris. And me, I'm thinking, oh, wow, we're going to Texas. <laughs> and it was quite the opposite. They wanted us to Paris, France. And so what ended up happening was I had to go back to the school, I mean, back to my home, get the approval, get the passports, you know, and then, then we had to get the approval from our teachers in high school. All high teachers said, or my dance partner teachers said, go ahead. All of my teachers, except for one teacher, because we had to be gone for two weeks. It was the last week before the winter break, and we will be out for that winter break. So we wanted to make sure we didn't have any homework or catch up or anything. None of my teachers gave me homework except for one. This was my first African-American teacher gave me my homework assignment. Okay. <laughs> and it was my art teacher. Her name is Mrs. Moore. Now, let me give you a little bit about my art. I hated art. Well, Tra- classically trained art. I had had a very bad experience with a with a teacher when I was younger. I went ahead of the class, thought I was doing my thing, and she gave me like a failing grade on the project. And I was like, I would never take art again. And it wasn't until I went to high school and I had my had Mrs. Moore that I decided I would take art. But I always drew. I could do graffiti and all that stuff. And Mrs. Moore gave me that homework assignment. It was to find a painting in the Louvre Museum. Oh my gosh. I'm in Paris now, looking for this place called the Louvre. We had high tops back in those days. I know that, remember the hair? We used to go up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're over in Paris. Every, you know, we're trying to get people to, I'm saying the Louvre. Have you seen the Louvre? I'm, and no one understands us. They keep touching the top of our heads. We're trying to figure out their hats or not. And so finally somebody directs us to a building that looks like a church, a cathedral. This was humongous. It took up like three or four city blocks. And I'm standing in front of these doors with my dance partner and I, Hype, and we're standing there. And his name is Chris Jenkins. He's on Facebook as well. And we're, we're standing there in front of those doors, and I say, Hype, man, I'll be right back. I'm going here and get this painting. I'm going to get this note from my teachers, and I'll be right back. And thank God I didn't do it, man. He walked in here with me because it takes – you know how many days it takes to get to the Louvre, get through the Louvre? Yeah, you know, you were talking about the uniqueness of um, your generation, and you mentioned uh, mm-hmm. a young lady by the name of Sybil, and mm-hmm. who went to Eastside High School in New Jersey okay. with our producer, Leslie Gist. Yeah. And oh. they were there with the uh, infamous principal, Joe Clark, there in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh-huh. And but getting back to your uniqueness and your generation, you guys wore your name on your belts, uh, name rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had your you wore your names on everything. 
compared to what's going on today where this generation is wearing other people's names. What what's mm-hmm. going on with that? What's, I don't know. What what in your view, what was the shift? What caused that shift? The shift was I believe, like I said, let me finish the story about Sybil. I didn't find the painting, but I was inspired for art okay. ever since, right? That's, that's the end of right. the story. Now, what you were saying about the identity crisis that we're in now is exactly what it is. If you look at a Formula One car, they're not looking at the engine of the car. They're not looking at the tires of the car. They're looking at the details of the car. They're looking at everything that's on that car. They want ownership over that. It may be the powerful car that got there, but you don't notice that's the engine that's got that car there. And with our generation, I feel like people are branding, people are branding our talents. And so it's not just about, it's weird because in the, um, in the, when we were, you know, I used to dance, and so I had music videos, but in every music videos that I was in, I was in like maybe about 20 different music videos, and all of them, the one was one thing you could not do. You could not come in there with even a Yankee cap on because they would put black tape over it. No names or nothing on your shirt. Nothing could be on your shirt. You just dance. It wasn't about promoting other people. And now everything is branded. Are we getting the benefit of it? I have no idea. Hmm. And you mentioned that you're being in these videos. Your artwork is also displayed in numerous uh, TV shows and movies. Could you give our uh, listening audience an idea of some of the TV and movies that your art has been displayed in? Sure. My work was um, my, the first um, television appearance was um, was a fun appearance. It was in um, New York Undercover. I don't remember, uh, I hope everybody remember New York on the cover. Um, they used to go back to a, a bar. I think it was called Nipsey's. I forgot the name of the bar they used to go back to at the end of the show. And on the back of, my, on the, back of the wall, they, would have, they, paint, they repainted one of my pieces. It was called Backstage. So it was on New York Undercover. Believe it or not, it was on the new Cosby show. After the old Cosby went down, they had a new yeah. Cosby show, and they put it on there. It was on Malcolm and Eddie. Um, the, um, that's the name of a few of those. I don't have all of them down pat, but I do know Tamika uh, is on. Uh, Tamika, I forgot her name, her full name. She's coming out with a reality show, and they asked that my work be in that reality show as well. So that's current. Um, then I was in, um, so that was, then um, Queen Latifah used my work in movies as well. Okay, and so has Tom Joyner? Tom Joyner, yeah, he, he commissioned a, a card from me. Yeah, that was back in those Essence days. I started, I signed with Essence Magazine when I was 17 years old, and I stayed, yeah, 17, and I stayed with them for about 10 years. And I got to meet a lot of people through them, and I, uh, I was at the first Essence, the first five Essence festivals, and that was in New Orleans, post uh, um, Katina. And that gave me a chance to meet Tom and his crew, very funny people, and a lot of different celebrities, man. Yeah, you know, we've hit 3,000 shares with your Still I Rise oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. on Facebook. It's, uh, I think we started out, or you did, actually. Um, the, uh, the hits on Facebook went from 2,000 to 3,000. Yeah, that's uh, between no time Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, I, you know, it's the, and, you know, I wasn't going to print it because it was just a personal piece that I wanted to do. And the original ended up selling that same day, along with the sketch. And uh, it wasn't until um, 
it was a, it was it was a ton of people just asking for the print, man. And so, actually, I said, you know what? I guess it, it means something not just to me, but to a lot more. So I said, let me go ahead and, and not be selfish with this. Mm-hmm. So we will release it in print. Mm-hmm. Tell us about social media and how it has uh, impacted your work. It, it has. Um, social media has has really changed the scope of art where before you wouldn't know what was happening in Europe. You wouldn't know what I was doing in, you know, in, in Africa. I just posted a picture of some children reading my, my, uh, one of the children's books that I illustrated, and they were in Kenya at a school. I just posted on my um, Facebook page. You wouldn't know about that. It, it gives you insight on what the artist is thinking or what the – they're now at your fingertips, whether it be on your cell phone or on your desk, on your desktop. And it makes art – that much more accessible. And the way these social media, like with the Instagram and Facebook, you can actually follow these artists and see sketches and see what they're doing. Where before you might see an art, artwork only in an art gallery or maybe on television. Now you can see what, not only what that artist is doing, they'll let you know before it even gets out there. So it has, small, it has shortened the distance between the time that you get to see what you want to see from that artist, and it makes it more acceptable. Hmm, very interesting. And um, what about uh, how do you, what about financing of the art these days? Um, it, it's a different market. Well, I, well, you know, it's it's different for me. I've been in the industry for over twenty years. I can say it's it's got to be harder for the younger generation to come up to find a uh, clientele. Um, I, I take it, you know, because the galleries aren't around the way they were. They were plentiful back in the 80s. When Cosby came out, every, there, was guys, there was galleries everywhere, on every corner. And when mm-hmm. the recession hit, the recession hit, the galleries took that hit. The housing market affected the galleries. And so now I find that the collectors are out there. The people that are not collecting the work just to match a wall or match a Paint, uh, you know, match up with their interior. They're collecting because they have um, they have invested their time in the artist, and they understand what they're buying, and they're willing to. They know what they're buying is going to stand the test of time, and it's, you know what art is really meant to go up in value. It's supposed to be a commodity in a sense, and so I find that that market has expanded during these times, and the co- the collection artists has went down. The collection artist uh, market has went down. Mm-hmm. Do you market directly to your social media fans and followers? I do that. I do that quite often. You know, I have over 5,000. Mm-hmm. The way I set it up, I only have 5,000 um, followers on Facebook. And um, so I have to get a fan page so I can, because we have, I don't know, I think it's over 1,000 people waiting to get on this page. And so I have to eventually make another Facebook page that's a um, fan page so I can, transfer all those people waiting to be able to see what I'm doing. Um, but I do put my work on Instagram and Facebook uh, weekly, if not daily, and to get the response. It gets, I don't do as many shows as I used to do. I'm stuck doing a lot of um, work, commission work in the studio and working on children's books. I really don't even get time for myself. So I, what the great thing about doing shows is you get to know what is a good piece and what is a not a good I used to do the show in Philly. Man, those sisters actually 
created my Soul Sister collection because they came by and let me know exactly what they did and did not like about these Soul Sisters I was painting. And I kind of turned my... I kind of steered it into the directions, and once I got those approvals, they started buying even more and more of those originals. And so that, I do miss that part, but Facebook and Instagram gives me a perspective of what good, what is a good piece and what is not. Okay, so artists come a long way um, from back in the day during the Harlem Renaissance um, where the artists, uh, don't have what they call patrons. Is that a dead thing now, or you have you know, to where, no. where patrons would support a particular artist or whatever? No, no, no. The uh, well, the market that has died to me is the more commercial market that has taken the biggest hit. Patrons are, you know, it really depends if you're a patron of an open edition print. That market is is a hard market. Patrons are even limited edition, like reproductions. That market has has uh, slowed tremendously. But the original collector market, those patrons are a different kind of patrons. They're, they're only buying what they have researched and believe that is going to stand the test of time. We all have benchmarks in our careers. You know, we all start off, we can say we start off going um, from the bottom to the top. You know, as an artist, you should not just be looking for one level and then you want to stay there. You should set goals. Uh, if you want to just do print market and that's all you want to do, you, will, you, would, you are just into art for, for money. Art has to be something you love to do. And as you get better, you'll find that your market expands more. And as you expand, if you're lazy, it doesn't. So as you should be looking to go to the museum level. And that's where the patrons that are buying the works for a hundred and to a million dollars, a hundred thousand to a million dollars are. And that's where you should be working to get to. Uh, we notice that you have a lot of musicians in your work. Can you explain that? I've been um, when I was um, when I was what was I like sixteen or seventeen? After leaving Paris, I started uh, going to a gallery. It was called Just Art. Tony Nivon back in New Jersey. Wow, man, those guys helped me so tremendously. When I could, before I started painting like I paint now, I did nothing but realistic watercolors. I would go to the library. I'd get my library card, and I would go in there and get a couple of books and pull them out and start doing my watercolors. And one day I brought my work to Tony and Vaughn, and they said, you know what, Frank, you need, to, you need to find a style. You need to have a thumbprint in art. You have to come up with something that is resonant, that resonates to you and what uh, resonates with you. I was a graffiti mm -hmm. artist at heart, and so what I found is that mannerism was similar to graffiti, the way the body would curve and the, the flow. And so and, and one day, one day um, so I started working in mannerisms. One day I found a tune online. It was, I asked my cousin Mark, Mark um, uh, my man Mark, uh, 1% out in Brooklyn. I said, Mark, I hear this, this song on the radio. It's, it's crazy. It was, a, it was actually a Lexus commercial, and they used um, this song called Take Five. And it, um, I, I don't recall the guy who's going to kill me. I'm looking right at his face. Black Dave, Black. Du uh, Dave, Dave Brubeck. Brubeck. Oh, my gosh, yeah. right? Is that not a song the high? So anyway, I love that music. So I said, you know what? I'm into, I, before that, I was never into jazz. 
But there was something that hit me with that. And Mark told me something that changed my artistic career. It's crazy, man. This one conversation about Take 5 on a Linux commercial, a Lexus commercial. He said, Frank, I said, Mark, did you, you ever heard this song? Where did I get this? He said, Frank, if you want to go get it. I said, what the hell kind of answer is that? At first, I was offended. Then I sat uh-huh. back and I listened. If you want it, go get it. Right after that, I started putting a check on the back of my signature, like Nike. And it wasn't because I'm a huge fan of Nike, but I love their saying, just do it. And so Just Do It came from that, that jazz song, me with my ambitions and goals, going out there to just do it, just go pick it up, just go get it, just find it, do it, all came from jazz. And I've been a jazz fan ever since, and that's going on, I don't even know how many years that is, man. And I, so this resonates through my work, and I love, I'm an old head with jazz. I don't like the new stuff. I'm not into the Kenny G. I'm into the Bop era, the Dave Bubrick, the, the Cannonball Adderley, you know, Dizzy, Miles, to name those guys, man. I'm into that. I just illustrated a book on um, Melba Liston. Um, um, you know, I just finished that up. So I'm a huge jazz buff. So you're going to see that, that rhythm through my work. What other musicians are you proud of? Um, I'm thinking of Miles Davis, Dizzy uh, Gillespie, Billy oh, Holiday. Have any Billie of those Holiday. artists uh, inspired your art? And, in which, and, and if so, in, which, in what way? Well, you know what, um, those are, I can go from Cannonball to my man that used hard on Art, uh, Art Blakey on the drums, you know what I'm saying? I can go to, you know, when I'm thinking about being wild with my art and painting crazy, I'll, I'll go to um, Heidi Heidi Ho. What was my man, Heidi Heidi Ho? You remember? I'm going to test you. Yeah, Cat uh, uh, Calloway. Cat Calloway, you know, that whole Harlem. What, what spoke to me about jazz, man, especially one of the soundtracks I love the most, is um, Malcolm X uh, with Spike Lee. He put together uh, Beans and Cornbread, How to Fight and the whole nine. I'm corny old school with my music. So it's not just jazz. I love all good music in a sense, man. And so with, with the, about, with the thing about jazz is they were, I don't remember if you remember this song, it was called So What by um, Miles Davis. Miles Davis, yeah. Yeah. What was he talking about? You could, at that time, it was hard for an African-American to show any talents. We were, that's what, you know, to me it was like the black codes came in. And it took generations upon generations for us to break those codes that were set up for African-Americans that wanted to do something outside of the box. The blacksmiths couldn't make money. If you were a painter, you couldn't even sign your name. If you were a craftsman, you couldn't sign. You had to sign your slave owner's name. And so you couldn't get any recognition. You know, out of the thousands and millions of artists, the Harlem Renaissance only recognizes maybe 20, if that. And I might be pushing it on 20, you know. Mm-hmm. But there was millions of artists that were African, of African descent that could paint at that time. What, where were they at? What vehicle did they have to show their work? Jazz broke through. My gosh. These instruments were able to express the feelings that those artists had. So what? You don't know what Miles was going through that came up with that. When those cannon, when 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 Art Blakey is beating on them drums, beating on them drums, you don't know what he can he can express himself, and people will applaud him. One of the one of the best at it, I'm telling you, was Nina Simone. Listen to her. Listen to "Strange Fruit" from Billie Holiday. We couldn't dare get away with saying things like that, but if you put the rhythm to it, 
we can do it. You put that beat to it, the, mono, the uh, Black and Blue by by uh, my man Duke, uh, uh, Duke Ellington, you know, oh, my gosh. You could do it. The solo gave you expression. The music gave you the expression to really tell you how you felt for the moment, how you exactly. felt. Exactly. Yeah, and you didn't have to hide it. As a matter of fact, everybody loved it. It sold. Uh, kind of Blue, what did that sound? I mean, is that the name of that album that, that has sold the top selling jazz album album ever was Miles Davis' Kind of Blue? Listen to those songs on there, you know? What was yeah. he really saying? Yeah. So are you uh, are you based in New York City? Uh, no, I'm in Atlanta right now. You're in Atlanta yeah. right now. Yeah, I'm in Atlanta okay. right now, and I say that. You know, in New York is where I would love to be at. New York is where it started. I was in Jersey, and I would go to New York for my inspiration. Most of my work is inspired by urban uh, decay, that urban disgust, that urban feel. That's what my work is inspired by. I'm in Atlanta because I made this move for my family. It was um, it was just a better move for my family at the time. I was looking for property, and so, you know, it was, you get more for your property in Atlanta or in the south. And so I came out here. So my children can see that I, you know, as parents, we owned our properties. We owned, you know, I had a couple of properties out here. And so we went south. And so that's why I'm here. But the inspiration, thank God for the Internet, because <laughs> I got deer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I want to I want to advise the people in the chat room that uh, my chat is down and I'm rebooting. Um, but getting back to you, Frank, have you experienced any racism um, in your work, in your line of work? Being an artist, well, this you, day and age. you, you know, it's set up different, man. You know what? It's set up different. I, you know, um, I wouldn't. I, things are different. You know, it's not as blunt. The ceiling is 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 not as um is opaque, man. You know, I'm not saying that there's um. That's why you there's no shortcuts to art. Art does not have a color. Doesn't have a nationality. Art is art. And when you want to sidestep, there, when you do this thing, there are things that go along with this. Like if you say, I want to become the manager at, at your job, there are credentials that go with it. Even though the manager that you look at may hang out with the bar with you and do all this and that, he seems like a regular guy, you can associate with him, you consider yourself just as good as he is, but you don't know what it took for him to get there. You don't know what his credentials are. And what a lot of times is that the system is set up that you see the glamour and glitz, but you don't see the work ethic that goes that went into it. We, everybody wants to be a basketball player, but no one wants to go to the college, get the grades, come out, work as hard, and do everything else that goes along with it. If you want to sell like Jeff Kuhn balloons, and you want to sell like um, Roscoe and all these other artists and that are that, that buy fiat, you have to go that route. You know, some of us feel as though we can make it by just by painting one picture and thinking it's a hit and that's going to be what we need to get in there. But it comes with degrees. If it doesn't come with, if you don't have a degree and you're a self-taught artist, you're going to be, you're going to go through a lot as art in the art world because a lot of the high-end galleries are only accepting artists with a degree in art. That's the ones they want to see in their gallery. And so, but what happens with the, a lot of the, the, the role and the, the, um, the um, urban communities is that we are so caught up back to our the earlier conversation and to the designer and to the exterior 
and to what we have on, we don't want to put anything in. We don't want a degree. I can't put that on my belt. That doesn't look cute. Kanye's not singing about that. Jay ain't singing about that. So it doesn't look fashionable. It's not in style to have an education. It's not in style, but you have artists like um, my man Swiss Beats, which is an avid collector. He went back to Yale. He went back to school. A Harvard he went mm-hmm. back to. And it's because he sat amongst people when his, even though he's a millionaire, business, successful, what the hell do you need to go back to school for? But he sat amongst these billionaires and millionaires and realized he didn't know the language. And just because you can say son and yo, what's up, and you sound good on your block, when you're out in the business world, that doesn't, they don't understand it. There's a whole nother world and a whole nother language and a whole nother understanding that's bigger than you are. And you can think that your world is big, but you need to get out there and get an education so you can hang with the big boys and understand what really goes on behind those corporate doors. And so education is the key to success. You better either, if you haven't gotten a degree, you better have a ton of books on anything that you're studying, and you need to know, make sure you're well-versed in any style. I paint, I paint in mannerism. I can tell you, I can give you at least 20 to 30 artists that paint in mannerism. I started studying Cubism at the age of 21. I can tell you anything about Picasso, Brat, that whole movement, uh, Lager, any artist that came out of that, that, that European movement, I know that style. I know why they painted. I studied it. I'm well-versed in it. So you have to know what you're doing, not just because it looks stylish for the moment. I, I had a clothing company. I don't know if you knew this. I had a, clothing, I had a clothing company with Fat Farm. And uh-huh. I was, um, the, what, made me spark, what sparked me into getting that clothing company is that one day I was looking at some Nike ads, and I was like, hold on, this is my... My man Kadir Nelson got a nice shirt out. I said, I want to go get a, I want to go out and get a shirt or work with Nike or something like that. I told it to the right people. Next thing you know, they introduced me to Fat Farm. And next thing you know, I have a clothing line. Brother, the coats cost $1,000 a piece, signed and numbered. They sold out, and I shut that thing down. I wow. went after a dream, and once I got there, I realized the work that has to go into it. These millionaires are picking up my coats and putting them down that I was selling for four and five thousand dollars, thinking it was something. And these coats were to them. This is like Frank. This is just what I do for a living. And this is this product for us. The workload that goes into the fashion industry is it needs one hundred and twenty percent of your time. You have to be. I I found I had such more of a respect for that industry. It's a lot more than asking for it. When things are put on your plate, it's a totally different. Than asking, are you ready for it? Do you really want what you're asking for? Yeah, that's a very important question. Um, and speaking of uh, art and music, um, have you done any designs for uh, musicians? Uh, and I see that albums are now coming back, and a lot of uh, jazz music. Um, was as noted for its artwork on their album mm-hmm. covers as they were the music. Man, I, I did so, that. Okay. The, the last, um, the la- I've done maybe about eight or nine different album covers from various artists. The last one I did was for Blue Note Records. Um, I did a, uh, and that was an honor, man. You know, everybody knows, anybody knows jazz, you know, that's the, that's the resting place. That's one of the last of the Mahegan. Exactly. And so I did something for Blue Note Records, and then, um, 
you know, I used to do something for Crazy Vibes and things. Those guys were out. Uh, I think I forgot. The, yeah, I forgot the name of that group. But yeah, I did. A, I did my. I was good friends with. Um, with I'm good friends with Hollis King. He was at Universal Records, and he's on Facebook as well. He was a man. I tell you, the kind of blessings is not only do you get to work with some of these people, is these these people that you're working with, they're nice when you meet them and they become your mentor. You know, and so Hollis became a mentor of mine, and he pushes me. Even to the day, you know, when I think I'm doing something, he challenges me as an artist. And Hollis is a blessing to have, you know? Yes. I want the folks in the chat room to know that uh, the uh, connection is broke again, and we'll be with you in just a minute here as soon as we get that rebooted. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having some uh, trifling weather here in the Midwest. Okay. Uh, how's the weather down there in Atlanta? Well, it looks like it's storm about to kick in over here. I'm in my studio window, and it's getting black now. So, yeah, but that's okay. fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so do you collect? Do you collect? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, you talking to me? Yes, you. Okay. Do you collect art? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, what the? Not, what? not beyond, not beyond <laughs> jazz cover, uh, album covers. Uh, oh, man. This is the thing. This is why I try to inspire people to collect. Um, two reasons. Two reasons why. With, with, with collecting, with collecting of art, you're you're doing two things with art. A lot of times, we um, we collect art because we want to reflect on what we've done. It shows our experience. It shows our life experience. And so it's um, you collect art because. You know, it can reflect on something that you may have done in your childhood, and then you might have a chance, and it's an investment. It's not just something you buy today and tomorrow you're going to hang it on your wall, and three weeks later, two years later. If you buy an original of mine, it will guarantee to go up in value by the minimum $1,000 every year. And so, you know, it's a commodity that can be passed down to the next generation, like an old jazz record. It can be passed down to the next generation upon generations. And you know what? My, my biggest thing is a lot of times we have to go to um, not just the African-American, we have to go to the art world in general. But if our African-American millionaire basketball players or entrepreneurs would invest back into their own culture for art, we would have the next Basquiat. We would have the next Picasso. We would have that. But a lot of times we have to we have to go out and we have to find other patrons other than our own nationality to support because we don't have the support of African Americans. They don't see the value in paintings, in the originals, in the limited editions. Where we should all own at least one or two pieces of art in our in our home, and not something from Kmart, <laughs> not something from IKEA. We should have something in our our house, something to collect, man. We should all have something. Well, um, after talking with you and viewing some of your artwork here online, I'm certainly um, going to get in tune with that and uh, see about uh, becoming a collector of, of good art. Um, mm-hmm. Now, and what did you suggest one would start with again? Man, this is, if I were you, I were you, I would do this. If I find an artist I like, right? I would start. Yeah. It has to be signed and numbered and limited. That's what I would do. If I could start anywhere, signed, I'd start numbered, with, and limited. Signed, numbered, okay. and limited. If you want to start with originals, you'd be surprised 
how you can call up an artist and they can be able to negotiate something with you. You can start off if you only have like four or five hundred dollars or two hundred dollars. If you don't have, if they don't have any prints available, you can say, "Hey man, how about a sketch? You got any sketches hanging around that you might want to let go for three hundred dollars?" And you print uh-huh. that little sketch up, man, and that looks beautiful. Put a nice little mat around that, a nice mat, a four-inch mat around that with a nice black frame, a gold frame, and you put that on the wall, and that will start it. And you say you might just collect sketches. And sketches, each sketch of yours might only cost you about $200 or $300. You frame it up, it might bring it to three, dollars $400 if that. But that piece goes up in value every year. It goes up in value. It's, it's just, mm-hmm. If you think about it, um, let me put it like this. There was a gallery in the, in the, in, um, in the WPA movement that collected, um, that would give these artists shows, man. And so what they would do is that um, these artists like Thomas Tom Benton and all these artists that did a lot of murals and, those, and um, Diego Rivera and all those guys that did works um, for murals that works for art progress. I forgot how you pronounce it, but either way, they would, this gallery would show their work. And sometimes patrons would come in for reselling of their work. When times were rough, you would have patrons come in to resell their artwork. And so they would bring those Picassos back to the market that they bought for two or $3,000. They would sell them for forty to $50,000. And that's what art mm-hmm. is, man. You buy it. You make sure you're buying the right artist. You make sure you follow them. If you have a conversation with them, definitely do that. See where they want to be at in the next 10 years or five years. What are their plans? If they sound like they're making any sense, you just say, okay, let me invest. What do you have? Send me some photos. And that would be the way to start the conversation, man. Okay. Wow, this is Leslie. Leslie hey, is Leslie. online. How are you, Frank? This interview is going so uh, it was going really good. Um, I just had a quick question. Sure. Um, I've been to art shows just mm-hmm. recently, the Harlem um, Art Show uh, twice, and mm. I was just really blown away by so you know the great work that we're doing. You know, you guys are doing. Could you tell us where should we go for beginners like myself and Preston, how can we bring our kids to get them involved mm-hmm. and, and learn everything about what you're saying right now? What what are the hottest places to go to see Man, uh, black artwork exhibit? It, there used to be, you know, and that's the sad thing, the Harlem Fine Art Show is about the only show that I know that that um, in Harlem that you can go to outside of going to your local African-American galleries that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the biggest show that I know of. They're actually going to do a show in Atlanta this month. Um, that is a good show to, to get your start up. You get to meet the artists and build your collection. Um, you know what? If you, it's sad to say, but Instagram, you could follow mm-hmm. artists on there, uh, and Facebook as well. But it's basically you have to know where the major shows are, and that, like I said, that one is, um, believe it or not, is the Harlem Fine Art Show. We used to have the October Gallery show that came in, and you'd have 40 to 80 artists there. We used to have the Black Fine Art Show, and you'd have all the high-end African-American art galleries there that sold art. And, but what ended up happening is when this recession hit, those places, um, those shows had dissipated. And so what we are left with is, thank God, the Harlem Fine Art Show. If you look wow. at is there a union? American art. No. Is there no, a union no or a national organization of black fine artists? It would be. That sounds like a great thing, but no. And then, it, then I wouldn't even want, if there was something like that, I wouldn't participate because I don't believe in, I don't believe in segregating art. I don't mm-hmm. believe in, it should be art in general for all nationalities. They, we're already segregated. Mm-hmm. It's called 
It's called um, Outsiders, if you don't have an education, street art, if you don't mm-hmm. have an education, and it's called Fine Artists, if you do have an art degree. So that's the, the, those separations are there. If you go ahead and put another separation on you and considering yourself just a black artist, then there's mm-hmm. no, you know. What, is, what does just, it mean to be just? What does it mean to that, be just a black artist? Just well, a black what, artist. That's what I don't want to be categorized as. I don't want to be categorized as that. When you look at Picasso, you went to Rembrandt, they're looked at as artists. You don't say white artists. You don't say Chinese. You know, if you want to describe them, when you give the nationality, you do, but you don't say that's, you know, you want to put a name on these people. You want to give them by title. You don't want to give them by culture. Art should be appreciated by everyone. When they say Harlem fine artists, fine artists they're, in, they're mm-hmm. artists that came from Harlem. When they go from Cubism artists, Cubism artists, they don't say Spanish Cubism. They didn't say Picasso was Spanish. They, or they would just, or they wouldn't be, they wouldn't define themselves as just a Spanish artist or just yeah. an Italian mm-hmm. artist. Just. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. You know, so mm-hmm. why are we? Why would we want to segregate ourselves even more from a? from a world of art, when you enclose yourself that way, then mm-hmm. only people, you're not even following what trends might be out there. You may paint in Cubism, but you're not considering yourself one of the Cubist artists out there. You may do watercolors. You may be as wonderful as my man, oh, my gosh, Jane um, uh, Robinson. I forgot his name, Mario Robinson. He does watercolors. You wouldn't even know his nationality. But he just, mm-hmm. he's just fluent with it. When we put definitions and, and, and we put, you know, other than what it really is, if I'm a watercolor artist, I paint watercolor. Call me a watercolor artist. Yes, I'm mm-hmm. African-American, but I'm painting watercolors, you know. But right. that's what, so you your, know. your subjects, your subjects mm-hmm. are they integrated or are they mainly African-Americans? My work, is, my work now is more integrated, and it will be even more integrated. Because my market has expanded mm-hmm. not just to the to one diaspora, it's it's expanding out into mm-hmm. the world, and so I have to. So I'm looking at art in a different perspective now, and subject matters. I'm looking how we are, how we African American, Chinese, Latino, how we all are in the scope of things. And I walk down the streets mm-hmm. of Manhattan. I don't just particularly look at an African American woman and see the style. Mm-hmm. I, she could be a Caucasian. She could be. She could be Chinese. She could be anything. If she, if what she got on is hot, <laughs> you know, what I'm, saying? I'm painting that. I'm gonna paint that. Right. You know, the, the, so when the, you the, said now, you said now. Um, what did you mean by now? This is a new uh, area for you. This is as as I was younger in the arts. I painted what I knew, and right. what I knew at that time was was the di- African American diaspora. And that's what I continue right. to resonate from my paintings, whether it be children, mm-hmm. life, or everything. And as I got mm-hmm. older, I started looking, my vision expanded. And so I started looking mm-hmm. at everything in the scope of art and what was interesting to me. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, it's not, it's my palette isn't just going to just be African-American. I am African-American. I, that's always going to resonate in my work. I'm always going to have that mm-hmm. style, that flair. That's always going to be there. But when I study my style, my style is mm-hmm. called social realism. And that social mm-hmm. realism can, we have people that are struggling in all nationalities. And so when mm-hmm. I paint, I will paint when it comes to realism and social realism, not just the African-American cause. It may be the Mexican cause. It may be the, it may be the Chinese cause sometimes that might come through. It may be a Chinese homeless man. It may be anyone. It, it could be anything right, that right. sticks into that theme. And if you love me, then you'll love mm-hmm. my work. 
And right. if you love that now, style, it'll resonate with you. Now, I just have to ask this question because um, you you mentioned, a, mentioned several artists, and I, mm-hmm. I guess they're not black. How many of of those artists are used African-Americans or anyone outside their race as their subject? On the artists that, that I follow? Yeah, most of them. Yeah, the most ones that you studied do. in school, mm-hmm. how many of them, you know, you know, really focus or even have African-Americans or African or anybody outside their race yeah, as a subject? When, you, when they paint, when they paint uh, if you look at um, uh, George Bellows is one of my favorites. He painted the boxing series, and he had a lot of African-Americans in his work. Um, that whole Ashcan movement of art that came up, they would mix African-Americans in them. I'm not saying that they were predominantly putting all African-Americans in their work, but they did show African-Americans at a time when that wasn't, a, that wasn't something that had to be shown. That wasn't something. We were being, at those days, we were being stereotyped, and we were being cast mm-hmm. down to the point where, you know, we were, t- we, you know, those are the days when we had the Aunt your Mama looking African-American. Right. And when we were painting, and even on cartoons, we were looking like mm-hmm. jungle weird characters. Funny. And for what I thought and what gave me even more passion towards these artists is that while they didn't capture us and that the typical way that we were portrayed at those times, they showed us dignity and respect. And they didn't have to. They didn't have to add us in there at all. And and was this work done for free? <laughs> well, and believe it or not, believe it or not, in those days you didn't sell art. You didn't sell a lot of your mm-hmm. art. You just painted a bunch mm-hmm. of pieces and hoped that a guy would pick up your collection. And um, right. even right. with the, if you look at um, Basquiat, you know, when he came up, you know, he didn't, you know, before he got on, he just painted to be painting. That whole abstract expressionism, they just painted to mm-hmm. be painting. They didn't just paint just to you know, because they were going to, you know, make money and be a millionaire. These guys were working at the time and had no idea where the next meal was coming from, and they just followed the movement. Right. Well, I I love uh, the different genres that you're in and your story of, you know, all the different transitions you made. Um, On your website, you talked about people comparing you to Charles White and um, um, the mayor. Could, Could you talk about these two people? And uh-huh. and because I I do know of them, but uh-huh. I like to know did they were any of their subjects white? No. And you know what you know what inspired you? What work 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 what of their works? I'm sorry, Mama Jungle. Uh-huh. But what inspired you about their work? Their their works were. Um, let me speak with Charles White. Oh my gosh, Images mm-hmm. of Dignity. My gosh, he didn't he didn't. Um, you know, every once in a while, I'm not saying he just painted all African-Americans. Sometimes he put Latinos in his work as well. Um, their work, Charles came up during the time of the 60s, and he came up through the times of the mm-hmm. 70s and the 80s, um, and he came up through those civil rights eras. And he painted, he painted that time for that movement. And he painted, he wanted to reflect, the, and when, when I look at Charles, he wanted to reflect, he wanted you to see art, through the African American eye, he wanted you to look at your work, and he wanted—he was an awesome draftsman, and he wanted you to see what he was painting through that Wanted series. He wanted to make a statement. His statement was he wanted you to see what the African American diaspora was. Uh, Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence. Jacob Lawrence painted Harlem. 
paying Harlem. He paying the, the, the ups and downs, the do's and don'ts, the goods and bads of Harlem. And, and I even go back to the block from Romare Bearden. He painted that Harlem. He painted what was around him. He painted that Harlem theory. That it was a time when they grew up of segregation. And so that, that time, that, that spiral movement that they were in, you, you know about the spiral movement with Billy Andrews and, and um, uh, uh, Ernest Crislow. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's another artist. His name was um, Richie Mayhew. Richie Mayhew mm-hmm. is a great example. Richie, he only painted landscapes. You would even know there was a civil rights movement going on in his pieces. He just chose <laughs> not even to paint <laughs> African America and the diaspora and everything that was going on at the time. You look at one of my right. favorites is Norman Lewis. You know, he painted abstracts as well. And then if you look at um, my man, um, what was this guy's name? He would paint the line. He was a great color of um, painting in lines. Oh, gosh. I, I, I forgot he's not well, right we, there. We Huey Lewis Smith. We, we have no Huey, clue. Go I got ahead. it. Huey Lee Smith, Huey, Huey mm-hmm. Lee Smith, he painted, well, his paintings were more of color and shadow. And his theme was African-American, was white. And he was criticized at the time, mm-hmm. at those times, when it was most critical, when we were trying to show the African-American and how we were struggling and how we were going through and this and that. He chose to paint, paint, paint what he saw. What was around him? He painted the urban decay. He painted that rough city street scenes. But he chose his subject matter didn't potentially show all African Americans. So those are, you know, those are the artists that I admire, but each artist has their time. And if you fast forward to even Ernie Barnes, which a lot of my work is compared to, this guy is basically the, um, I have to give much respect to Ernie. And when I first came up, I was totally inspired by Ernie, Ernie and Annie Lee. But even Ernie had mixture of African-American and other nationalities in his work because it's not about just, you know, the artist, the movement, what you're trying to say. You know, if I'm riding a bike, I'm just not going to ride an African-American, stu- and, uh, you know, if it's a racing bike, I'm not just going to race against African-Americans. I'm going to race against whoever i got to race against. If you're painting and you're I painting have, style, I have two more questions. I have two ahead. more questions. I'm going to let um, Preston jump back in. Um, I noticed that there was a picture on your Facebook page of you teaching. And the oh. other question um, was about, um, you mentioned about uh, race relations and uh, not, you know, um, not just riding a a white bike or a black bike. This is the 50th anniversary of um, a lot of uh, black issues in the 60s. Oh, yeah. And... Many people, Brown versus the Board of Education. Yeah. And integration. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard you said that you had your first black teacher in high school. Oh, yeah. Um, we mentioned earlier that, mm-hmm. you know, I went to school with Sybil, Eastside High School. Oh, yeah. And uh-huh. mostly all of our teachers were black. I was, I was very pleased to have that experience, oh. including Mr. I, Joe Clark. Um, mm-hmm. a, lot of people, a lot of people feel that integration has um, set us back um, in more ways than one. And, and I don't mean integration. I mean forced integration Integration um, versus mm-hmm. voluntarily being integrated. And we've had that, especially in New Jersey, closer to Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. Um, how does your work, you know, reflect this integration versus segregation? And when you see the images of, 
the studies that were done in the 60s, 50s, and earlier of black children mm-hmm. choosing a black, a white doll mm-hmm. over a black doll. Mm. Um, mm. Um, how does your work combat that type of image um, and self-identity crisis that blacks are experiencing right now? Um, mm. And lastly, you've been working with black authors. Um, Chris mm-hmm. Paul is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, have you worked with any white authors? Uh, you know, I know you want to integrate. Have they come to you and asked you to work with them on their mm-hmm. books? So there's three mm-hmm. questions. You're working with children. It looks like you're teaching them how to mm-hmm. paint, and, and, mm-hmm. and you're working with children's uh, book authors. Mm-hmm. And how is this, um, how is your work, you know, are you, uh, they're handing you the torch mm-hmm. from the segregated era. Mm-hmm. What are you doing with this, this artistic torch um, in, this, in this movement that you're part of? And then I'm going to mute myself again and make sure that we get your contact number so people can purchase mm-hmm. your, your work and so forth. So uh, we should have asked you at least three times, but we had a bad connection between myself uh-huh. and the host. But we need to make sure we get that in. So I'm going to hang up and listen to your answers. All right. All right. Well, first, I'll um, I'll do the plug. My website is martiangraphics.com, and my phone number is 404-346-1400 for the website, uh, martiangraphics.com. That's out of the way. Um, Let me first start with my – I had the Dream Series. I think that would help this. my son had a TJ. He came home and we moved to Atlanta. Uh, and we ended up bringing him to, taking him to school. And when his, in his school he went to, passed the cotton field. And it's weird because um, I took, we stopped the car. I never, I always saw them. You know, I never actually, you know, I've never seen them in person. I stopped and went out and grabbed the piece of that cotton and looked at it. And man, it just, wow. And till today, I have a, cotton take to my piece of cotton take to my easel and it's to remember what from whence I came and remember that it's on the hills in the backs of African-American slaves and that I'm able to stand here on this phone today from what they overcome and what my family members had to go through gave me my opportunity Jill Scott has a song I mean Jill Scott has a song that about freedom and taking my freedom and what she's going to do with freedom and listen everything about freedom. And what I end up finding out is that what I, every day I wake up, I realize what it took for me to get here and what my struggle is. But back to that piece my son did, it was about the um, Negro, the African-American Underground Railroad. And I had no idea when, until I did the research with him. I, I'm a big father. I do my home with my kids that the the African-American Railroad, actually some of the pieces that they would do is they would have a um, quilt. And on the quilt, they would show what was going on. They would show basically the watch out. It would be signs in the quilt. And so what I did with my work is that I always put quilts in my pieces. And it's to represent the struggle from the Underground Railroad. So I show that. I give that in my work. Um, where I want to show my overcoming 
is that we now can look at African American and the world in a sense and see our place in it. A lot of times I feel like when we are just trying to be the best in what we are and our box, how big is our box? There's a world out there. I heard someone on the radio the other day, actually Swiss Beat, talk about a lot of times when we're African Americans or we're rappers and we'll get what we get due and they'll give us the sneakers, they'll give us the clothes, people will give us what we need. Even listen to Donald Sterling and what he said. They'll give you. They'll give you what you need to think you're empowered. But if you look at the whole diaspora of the world, it's not a color thing. It's an educational thing. If you don't have the education, you don't know. The more you know, the better you work. And so when I bring that back to my artwork, I know my style. And I do, but 99% of my work is African-American. So, you know, but mm-hmm. what I end up doing is I end up integrating some of the pieces because I know where the style goes to. I know what the style is about. It's a movement. It's about social realism. This, and now so I can, I'm strong enough as a person, I'm dark enough as a person to paint those pieces and I can integrate those pieces as well. And art is for if you like it. And so that's what I came. I didn't realize what that 60s did. I know about that. I even have a series on that. I've, and with children's books, I've illustrated children's books for African-American writers, authors, as well as Caucasian authors. Um, a couple of books. As a matter of fact, I, it's weird because when I'm in this world of literature, we go back to the black codes, we as African-Americans are so disrepresented in that literature, literary market that there is not, if you look at the best New York Times bestsellers list, every week that shows how many books sold that year, how many books sold that week. And 10,000 or more you get on that list. You sell over 10,000, then you're, you're number one and two. Rarely do you see an African-American book on that list. Rarely. When I go to do book conference, rarely do I see more than seven African-Americans after, out of hundreds of people I see or books representing us. There is a missing, there's something missing there in that literary market. And a lot of us are doing things that we, that we could be authors, we could be illustrators, but we didn't even know that that was an opportunity to make. We're still stuck in struggling artists. And so I have to take so, on a lot of books. To show so that we have overcome. So, Frank, are you thinking that uh, the Obama age and the multiracial movement, do you think that's on the rise now? I'm not, I don't, to be honest with you, from, from my easel to CNN, I can tell you more about what's going on in the art world and what we're missing out on, because there's actually a, a, a huge show that goes on. It's called Art Basel. And you have every African American, you have every gallery that's high in, in the, on the planet that comes out to this show. And I would say it's maybe 2% African Americans represented there at those shows. And it's because mm-hmm. we're not, we are not investing in back into what we need is the art. We're, we're displaced when it comes to culture. If it's not basketball, if it's not sports, if it's not musical, it's not important. To us, we have to support ourselves as, as, as a community, as artists in, art, in all forms. And then we can be on the world market, not just the black market, not just the urban market. We can be uh, 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 art in general. 
So how do we change that? What, what steps are going to be needed? The way to change that is you have to invest back into education. You have to show artists what it takes to make it as an art as an artist. It's not just you wake up in the morning, you paint a picture, and you, and you go and you sell it, and you, you got to, there's more to it. You have to have an education to go along with it. There is a rhyme and reason to this. There's actually levels. Artists say levels. There's a lot of um, levels to this game, and just waking up and painting a picture in the morning and selling it at a gallery is in all of it. There is, is research. There's an education that goes with this. And so that's, okay. um, that's what we have to do. We have to get back to not painting but researching studying, and then you well, build the patrons. Most of the educators, however, don't look like us. I mean, they don't look black. Are there any black art schools out there? No, none that I know of, and I wouldn't, I mean, you can't, see, that's where, I, I, you, you have to go to a good art school. You have to go to a good art school. If you go to, you know, if you, if you whittle that down to, you're not going to find a black art school. You know, you're not going to find that. There is a, there's a school called Pratt out there. There's other art schools out there. You have to, it's just like um, if you're going to invest in a house. Are you going to buy a house that's in the hood? Or are you going to buy a house that has a good school system? Are you going to buy a house that has a good educate? you know, has a good, uh, there's no crime? Or where are you going to buy your house at? And that's how you invest in not only your art but in your colleges. You have to research what's the best college for your course. Some colleges are better for apps if you want to work in designs, if you want to work in fashion. And it doesn't necessarily, I don't know of any predominantly African-American schools that will teach that. You know, I don't know, so, I don't know of any art schools. So why do you think that uh, black artists aren't investing and in teaching their own? Because I, have a, I, have a, I met another African-American artist that was a, a teacher, and honestly, besides myself, I only know of maybe four others that are art teachers out there. What you need to do is you need to integrate more African-American artists into the school systems to start teaching art and showing what, what's out there and showing those young African-American children that, and all children that there is a place in art. One of the things that I find that is most disturbing is that um, I have uh, my sons, you know, they're young, so they grow up and they have their friends that come over. And I look at them all go from high school to college. Each one of them comes out of college, and next thing you know, they drop out of art school because they weren't prepared. They weren't prepared. And so what ends up happening is that we have, they don't know what they need to do. They don't have all the equipment available for them to make it in art school. And it's because they're ill Prepared, but I go out and I do a show in Ohio. I do a, um, a book conference in Ohio, and I go to a prep school. And these kids, I go to their art school art class, and I start teaching. And these kids that are well off, non-African Americans, they have projects that look like they are basically in museums already. And their art teacher, which is an African American, he's he's like one of the top artists out there. And so we need that same level of artists in school systems, and that's when we can see ourselves as becoming something. And, and that's one of the reasons why I do school visits. I see. Yeah, we had uh, Woodrow Nelson, uh, Woodrow Nash on the show oh. a while back. Yeah. Um, who is a sculptor, mm-hmm. and uh, he talked to us about his experience uh, with his art school. Uh, earlier, mm-hmm. Uh, Leslie was talking about or asked you about a national black artist uh, organization. And um, 
it made me think about Native American artists mm-hmm. and uh, what they have done in terms of going to Congress and getting legislation mm-hmm. uh, to protect their art. That is, mm-hmm. this art is done by Native Americans because um, they were being assaulted by non-Native Americans mm-hmm. um, doing art and passing it off as Native American art, and it really wasn't. Um, do you ever see black artists uh, going in for legislation to protect their art? Man, I don't know. What, you know, it all depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for private collections, what, you know what I, what I would see is this, because we're speaking on, if I would, if this is one of the things that I want to do once I get a little, once I get a little further in my career. What I would want to do is open up centers and art centers and neighborhoods and and, um, and, and and neighborhoods that are, you know, that, that are like in urban neighborhoods and opening up our eye to artists. A lot of times, I don't know if you, after I visit schools, what I find is that art is elective. And what happens is that artists that do not score well enough, which most artists are left-brained anyway, they don't score enough. So what happens, and then you don't know what's going on at their homes, you don't know what's going on with their community, you have no idea what their situation is, but you know what? They don't have a voice because they can't express themselves because they can't take art. And so what ends up happening is that they have to go their whole year not taking art, not being able to be able um, uh, to apply for those scholarships because they don't have a portfolio. They don't take art. And so what, what there needs to be is there needs to be a center in those, those hoods and those areas that can give artists a chance to be able to express themselves so they can get into galleries. Maybe, those, maybe that center can have a gallery showing that can help sponsor it. Maybe that can be something. But there needs to be art in the community. There needs to be art. And, so, and that, that goes back to if you can't find secure in yourself, now you're looking for a design on your shirt to show you're secure, you know. As a, my son skateboard, they're skateboarders, and they come out, man. It's weird. They hang with everybody, and it's not. Mm-hmm. And it takes me back to those days when I was break dancing. If you was good, yeah, it was all African Americans, but you every once in a while you might get a white boy in there that can pop, and you're like, how the hell that happened? <laughs> you know, you know. So yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't the norm. But it was back to, it was, skating reminds me of the 80s when it was about what you could do. It's not about the boards. Your shirt could be grindy. But what we have to have is something where the kids don't have to go with the hype. They don't have to go with the, the designs, the shirts, the T-shirts, this, the Bentleys. You listen to these rappers, you, you know, you're telling a child that's in a ghetto that he needs to have a Bentley, a, a $100,000 car. And he needs to have all these women and these chains. If he gets all that, the women will come to him. But if his self-esteem was there already, he wouldn't need that. He wouldn't need those cars. He wouldn't need that. And he, would, he could rely on himself. He could be satisfied with who he is, not what he has on him. And so if he's an artist, you know what? When I was going to school, I could paint and fight. <laughs> I realized I learned how to fight because I was being bullied. And then I started defending all the kids that were being bullied. And so, and when, but I painted. I could draw all the time. And so you couldn't tell me anything. I didn't have to have the best clothes on because you, you might get a big lip or a black eye if you told me. But everybody came to me to draw something for them. And so, so I what had do you that. think about what do you think about these guys getting out of their Bentleys with their pants sagging? Man, I think it's disgusting. 
I think it's disgusting, especially when you have a hundred thousand dollar car and you have no heart on your wall. Yeah, that's quite an image you put up there, sagging pants and a band. Yeah, that's disgusting to me. I mean, you, you, you're showing that's a jail thing that came in, and then it keeps going, man. And it's like, you know, it's just, it's sad. You know, do you follow those trends? And if you're, not, if you're not secure in who you are as a person, as an individual, you will follow those trends. Not because you want to show everybody your drawers. It's because everybody's showing their drawers. You need to be strong enough in who you are to stand up for you, for you. Whoever you are. Uh, Mr. Morrison, this has been a great, great show. We could probably uh, talk forever. You've been a great and wonderful guest. I really appreciate your coming on. Uh, We're over our limit right now. But what I want to do before I let you go is for you to give your contact information and kind of slow it down. Some of the people uh, sent a message into the uh, chat room that they want to write this down. Uh, so could you give us your um, my contact, contact information again? Yes, and sure. it's kind of slow. Okay. My contact is, uh, my website is Morrison, that's M-O-R-R-I-S-O-N, graphics, G-R-A-P-H-I-C-S, dot com. That's my website. My phone number to my website is 404 346, and that's 1400. 404, 346, 1400. Okay. And you mentioned a Facebook page? Oh, yes. You can reach me. You can, well, it's easier on Instagram, but um, Facebook I'm, I'm pretty much booked on. I only have 5,000. Okay. Um, so I'm either you can follow me on Facebook, which is Frank Morrison, you put in as a request, or you can follow me on Instagram, which is Frank Morrison as well. Okay, great. Really appreciate your um, taking the time to talk with us. It's been very enlightening. I'm going down to the Crossroad District here, which is our art district here in Kansas City, first thing tomorrow. Oh, my, you're not in Kansas um, City. You got to look oh, yes, up an artist. Oh, my gosh, there's a hot artist out there. Oh, man, he did an I Am a Man series. What is What's his, his name? Oh, you're killing me. You're killing me. Oh my gosh, he's hot too. Oh man, he's, um, he does more. He looks like William Tolliver's work. He does these abstracts. Oh gosh, I forgot his. I forgot his name on time. I'll find been, him. Yeah, find him. He's hot. He's yeah, got a lot of colors in his work. Yeah. Or post it on your Facebook page. Yeah, I will. I will. Yeah, All post right? it on your Facebook page. I appreciate it. All right, man. It was good talking okay. with y'all. Y'all you stay too, blessed. Frank. All Take right. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Well, folks, there you have it. Our guest was Frank Morrison artist, talking about his work uh, based on Maya Angelou's Still I Rise. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host. Uh, And I want to remind you that the shows are archived and available via iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. All the shows here on the Gifts of Freedom, where every month is Black History Month. Every day is Black History Month. Every Day is Black History Day here with our producer, Leslie Gist. Good night, everybody.